join me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. I hope you brought it with you. Uh, This morning in Romans chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11. One of my favorite lines in all of cinematic history comes from the mouth of the character Ramses II from the 1956 classic Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston as Moses and Yul Brenner as Ramses. Several times throughout that film, Pharaoh Ramses says, so let it be written, so let it be done. I get the feeling we need to have a movie night. <laughs> so let it be written, so let it be done. These are the words of a, of a king. And kings in the ancient world, and even kings in the modern world where they are, are not just rulers over lands. They're not just military commanders. Kings are also judges. Kings are the standard of the law. Kings are the ones who write the law and enforce the law. When a king says this needs to happen, it takes place. Why? Because his word is law. And so every time Ramses says, so let it be written, so let it be done, he's commanding something to take place, something to be recorded, something to be remembered, a law to be enforced. When he speaks, it matters. This morning we come to the aspect of salvation, sixth in this uh, series. This morning I was counting and I thought it was five, but it's six. The aspect of justification as a part of our salvation. We've looked at election, atonement, calling, regeneration, conversion. Faith and, uh, by that we mean faith and repentance. And now today, justification. What is justification? Justification is... God's objective declaration that in Christ we are in right standing with Him. It's the main idea of our time here this morning as we explore justification from Scripture. Justification is God's objective, which means not depending upon you or me or anything that we do. His objective declaration that in Christ we are in right standing with Him. Now we're going to look at this idea of justification fleshed out. Fleshed out in Romans chapter 5 in just a moment. But friends, this morning, knowing that God makes us right with Him through Jesus Christ, we should come to rejoice in the freedom and new relationship that we have with Him. The reality of justification by God's declaration as we trust in Jesus should lead us to much rejoicing. And I hope by God's Word and with God's help to show us how this is so. So would you stand with me uh, as you're comfortably able as we read from God's Word, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. There the Apostle Paul continues in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. 
Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Bless God for his word. You may be seated. Justification is God's objective declaration that in Christ we are in right standing with him. This is this aspect of our salvation that that we see as bringing us into a renewed and clean, pure, unstained by sin relationship with God. So considering Romans 5 and its general context in the course of Romans, let's first answer the question or describe what justification is. I've given it to you in a sentence. Now let's see if I can give it to you in several more. So what justification is. Justification, the way that the Bible uses it, is what we would call a forensic term. That means it has to do with legal declarations that are made in a courtroom-like context. Forensic evidence in a criminal case is evidence that can be used in a court of law. To be justified means to be declared innocent, means to be declared to, to be acquitted of any guilt associated with any alleged wrongdoing. So you come to see then how justification is related to this biblical idea of salvation. Or for there to be a relationship between a perfectly righteous God and unrighteous sinners like us, there must be a way for those sinners to be justified to him, to be acquitted of guilt, to be declared innocent, to be in right standing without guilt of trespass before God. Now, earlier in Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes the need for justification and the way that it takes place. You may just want to flip back a page to Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. We actually read this as our call to worship this morning, but here it is again. There Paul says, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God, acquitted of guilt by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If we're to think about justification in the context of the courtroom, it may play out in the courtroom of our minds, the courtroom of our imagination like this. There in that courtroom... It's the judge's bench, the defendant's table, the prosecution. And at the defendant's table stands the sinner. He's been accused of sin by Satan, who himself sits in the prosecutor's seat. And Satan has an airtight case. He's got hard evidence of the, the reality of the sins that he is accusing the defendant of. 
The defendant is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's no question in anyone's mind, even his own, that he has committed the sins that he's being accused of. Behind the judge's bench sits the judge, who is the only righteous God, the standard of righteousness himself. He sits there without sin. He is himself the arbiter of justice. If the defendant were to, in this courtroom, try to acquit himself, his defense to the judge might be something like, Your Honor, the prosecution is truthful. I have murdered. I have committed adultery. I I have been an idolater. I have been full of covetousness and greed. All the charges of the prosecution, I, I admit, and I don't deny any of them, Your Honor. But, Your Honor, I've also given a lot of money to charity. I volunteered in my community. I adopted stray puppies and I voted for all the right candidates. Your Honor, I am a righteous person. To which the judge would respond, Yes, these things may be true, but sir, I'm afraid. We're not here this morning to validate the nice things you have done, but to adjudicate the facts of the sins that you have been accused of and which you have admitted. Do you admit your guilt? To which the defendant would have to honor, uh, answer, Your Honor, I cannot deny my guilt for the sins listed against me. And the judge would have to answer, Well then, sir, you stand guilty of all these sins and responsible for every one of their consequences. In such a scenario, God, the judge, is just. He doles out justice appropriately. He gives what has been earned But that defendant is not justified. He is not acquitted. He does not stand innocent before the court. His guilt stands. But let's imagine the same scenario, but just change it at at maybe one point. Same defendant, same prosecution, same judge. When God, the judge, asks the defendant to address the charges made against him for his sins, the defendant replies, Your Honor, The prosecution is truthful. I have murdered. I have committed adultery. I have been an idolater and full of covetousness and greed and all these other things. All of their charges I admit and I do not deny. To which God the judge says, well then have you any defense? And at that moment, another man stands next to the accused and he rises to speak. But he speaks differently to the judge. He doesn't say, your honor. He says, father... The penalty for the defendant's sin is death. Rightfully so, your word has declared it. Your law has said every sin deserves death. This is true. And this one is a sinner. But, Father, death may not befall this one. He is guilty, but I am sinless. He deserves death, but I have already died. And I have been raised again. And what's more, Father, the death I died was for his sins. So you see, the price has already been paid. And by your own decree, Father, you have said that any who confess their sins and turn from them and trust in me will be forgiven and have eternal life. This man, Father, cannot be condemned. For that sentence has already been fulfilled by me. I stand As his defense, he is mine, and I present him to you, not as a guilty man condemned, but as forgiven and cleansed, his guilt covered by my own sinless blood. 
To which God, the just judge, replies, Son, all this is true. I hereby declare the defendant justified and acquitted of all guilt of his sins. Moreover, I grant him citizenship in my kingdom with all the rights and privileges thereof. Now, of course, there in that courtroom, the prosecution stands once more in defiance to shout, but your honor, he admitted his guilt. He's rotten by his own admission. Your law says he deserves to die. He stands condemned this day. Do your job, do your duty and condemn him. And with a stern glare, the judge replies to the prosecution, a death has occurred in substitute. Faith has bound this man to my son. My judgment stands. He is justified this day. This is what it means to be justified by faith, to be right with God as we place our dependence our trust, our faith in Jesus and leave it there. Trusting Christ who completed the sentence for your sin and for mine as a substitute so that we can stand before God without guilt. This is what verses 6 through 11 explain for us so well in Romans chapter 5, that Christ died for sinners when they did not deserve it so that those who believed in him could stand without guilt before God. Now, of course, to be justified does not mean that our past sins are wiped from history. They really happened. They still linger in our memory. And so sinners who have been justified to God, as they place faith in Jesus, face a conundrum at that moment. Am I a sinner or am I justified? I remember all the sins that I committed. I admitted all the sins that I had committed. And yet God declares me justice. Just, which am I? Am I a sinner or am I justified? Martin Luther, the great reformer, used a phrase to describe the effects of justification or the reality of justification in the life of the individual. In Latin, the phrase is simul justus et peccator, or in English, simultaneously just and a sinner. Simultaneously just and a sinner. The physical and spiritual reality is that I have sinned and I do sin. But the legal declaration from God, the binding declaration from God, is that I am justified before Him. I know what happened in the past. I know what I am. I know who I am. And yet God declares that I am something else entirely. The power of a legal declaration to to overcome the realities of the past is not something bound only to Scripture, but we we see uh, it illustrated in other places of life. I brought with uh, me this morning a a copy of the uh, final decree of adoption that was uh, given to our family when we, one month ago today, finalized the adoption of our son, Kai. On the first page, it's a a really simple declaration. You can see it. It's it's barely two pages, double-spaced. On the first page are, uh, are an admission that all of the legal requirements for adoption have taken place. We've done all of these things the proper way. And the second page is simple. It states this. From the pen of the judge, it is therefore ordered that 
The adoption is granted and the adoptee born January 22nd, 2019 in Johns Creek, Fulton County, Georgia shall be the child of the petitioners. That's Nikki and me. The adoptee shall be known as Kai Arthur Baum. From the date of this decree, the adoptee shall be the child of the petitioners and the adoptee and petitioners shall have the legal relationship of child and parent as if the adoptee was child of the petitioners. The adoptee shall have all rights and be subject to all the duties of that relation, including the right of inheritance from and through the petitioners. And Vital Records of Georgia shall issue a new birth certificate. Oh, mercy. We're going to get to this next week when we look at that aspect of salvation that we call adoption. But I'm jumping the shark. Vital records of Georgia shall issue a new birth certificate for Kai Arthur Baum accordingly. So ordered, Judge William Parnell, District Court Judge, Bernalillo County, etc., etc. So what's true? Is Kai our son or is he not? Genetically, he's the biological offspring of two other people. That will never change. That will never change. It will never be true that Nikki gave birth to Kai. And for that, I think she's glad. Three times was enough. Amen? (laughs) But the judge said, Kai is our son. And a birth certificate is coming that says, Kai is our son. So which is true? Is he, the bio, is, he our, is he the biological offspring of others or is he our son? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? These things are true at the same time. So we come before God with faith in Christ and we ask the question, am I a sinner or am I justified? And the answer is yes. But which yes is stronger? Which yes rings more loudly? Which yes has legal ramifications that change reality forever? The one that we are justified in Christ. That's what justification is. But let us see what justification gives. Because Paul is sure to tell us more than that. Here's where Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is so helpful to us. Because it demonstrates that justification sets into motion. It, it makes accessible all sorts of other things, other blessings from God. In fact, we could say that if we are not justified to God, we don't have any of these blessings that follow. First, justification gives peace with God through Christ. We see that in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, mentioned in verse 11, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That word reconciliation is the same to be at peace with someone. Justification, being right with God, gives us peace with him through Christ. This, of course, has connections to the effects of the atonement, which we looked at several weeks ago. 
That is that we are reconciled to God. We are made at peace with God through the blood of Jesus shed for us, his death in our place. And this reconciliation, which is expressed also in justification, leads to rejoicing, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 11, because of the renewed and the repaired relationship that we have with our creator by trusting Jesus and as he makes us free of the guilt of sin. What does justification give? It first gives peace with God through Christ. Second, it gives joy. Joy in the hope that comes with access to the grace of God. We see this in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace which we've said time and again in the series, which is the unmerited favor of God, is received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not by works so that no man can boast. It is the gift of God. The same faith in Christ. When we trust Jesus, we, are all, we, we not just receive God's grace, the gift of salvation, but we are justified. So faith justifies and faith uh, leads us to receive God's gift of grace. And in this way, Paul seems to be equating justification with grace. That is, to be declared right by God is a gift of God to those who have trusted in Christ. And I think, friends, that's a fair equivalence. To be justified by faith only and not by any works of our own is a gift of God to the undeserving. And it rightly leads to rejoicing, to gladness, to hearts filled with joy as those who have faith realize that they are brought by Christ himself into the very glorious presence of God. Being justified with God gives us joy in the hope that comes with access to God's grace. Third, justification gives this, a a renewed perspective on suffering. As we are justified to God in Christ, our suffering is transformed in the power of God to a, to a force for developing hope. Look at verses 3 through 5. We saw Paul's golden chain of salvation at the end of uh, Romans chapter 8, but here's kind of a, uh, another chain of sorts, one thing dependent upon the other. Chapter 5, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Being justified to God transforms our view, our perspective on suffering. In Christ and justified, made right with God, with the love of God present in us through His Holy Spirit that dwells in us, suffering creates patience and patience creates godly character, and godly character creates greater confidence in the expectation of Christ's return and all the hope of glory thereafter. Friends, all of this is not possible if believers are not united to Christ by faith and justified to God. Those who are not at peace with God do not have the hope that comes from godly character, which is made by patience or endurance, which is made by a renewed perspective on suffering. But those who have been made right with God through faith in Christ come to see suffering as that which leads to patience, patience to godly character, and godly character to hope. What else does justification give? Well, fourth, justification gives salvation. 
rescue. Those who are justified gain what we properly call salvation. The death of Jesus for sinners happens in accordance with God's eternal plan, Paul says in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When Paul says in verse 7 that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, he's not talking about a really righteous person. He's talking about a a Pharisee-type self-righteous person. Nobody wants to die for a self-righteous person. Nobody wants to die for the guy who says, yeah, I might be guilty of all these things, but I gave a lot to charity. I rescued lots of puppies. Aren't I cool? But Paul notes, someone might dare to die for a truly good person, for a a noble person, for, for, for a person who's like one of Sir Arthur's or King Arthur's knights of the round table, right? A really noble person. Someone might die for someone like that. Their life has particular value and worth and maybe even more than my own in my own estimation. So maybe I would give my life for them. But the love of God, as Paul continues, is so contrary to human expectation and human behavior in that while human beings were still in their sin, we weren't noble, we weren't even self-righteous, we were sinners. While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. Hardly anyone, no one would die for a self-righteous person. Somebody might dare, somebody might go out on a limb to die for a really noble person, but the reality of the gospel is this, that God loves us in this way, that when we were sinners, when we were the kind of people that no one would or should ever die for, Christ died for us. It is His blood shed on the cross, timely and perfectly offered, that justifies sinners and saves them, rescues them, redeems them from the righteous wrath of God. Salvation, friends, is a direct benefit of justification to God. Being right with Him as we take our faith, our trust, our dependence for all things and place it in the person of Christ and leave it there. We've seen what what justification is. We see what it gives. But finally, what does justification teach? What is this doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, teach to us today? First, you cannot be justified to God on your own merits. You cannot be declared in right standing with God based on all the good things that you think you've done. For all the same reasons that a murderer's charitable giving cannot justify him to society, a person's nice and generous actions toward others cannot acquit us of our sins against God. We stand in his courtroom. All the accusations of guilt are there. All the accusations of sin are there, and we really are guilty of them. And it doesn't matter how many good things we do. We're not there for God to say, hey, good boy, you know, slap us on the back and send us going. We're in courtroom. We're in his courtroom for judgment of sins that are alleged that we have committed, right? So for God to look at a sinner who is obviously guilty of their sin and to hear their defense say, yeah, 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 I did do all those things. I really did kill that guy in that really horrible way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but remember all those times I volunteered at the Animal Humane Association? Think about all the kitties that I pet while they were so lonely and cold. If God looks at that murderer who adopts kittens and says, yeah, good enough, go free. What sort of justice is that? 
We cannot, with all of our good deeds, and I put them in scare quotes like that because they really aren't, we can't stand before God with all of our good deeds and expect Him to acquit us of all of our sin. He would not be a just judge. You cannot be justified to God on your own merits. Only God can acquit us. Only God can justify us. And He has declared that our justification comes only by trusting Christ who paid the sentence for us. It doesn't come any other way. Likewise, friends, and as a corollary to this, justification comes through faith in Christ and not faith in Christianity. Christianity as a program, as a, as a system of life, dear friend, has no power in itself to save you. Christianity does not have power to save. Christ does. Christianity is not a system to be trusted for salvation. Let me say this. Your church life, your church membership is not a thing to be trusted for salvation. Now, that's not me saying that Christianity is bad or that church membership is bad. For Pete's sake, we're having a membership matters class right after this. But if you're trusting in Christianity, if you're trusting in the system, if you're trusting in your church for salvation, you've missed it. Rightly understood, Christianity is merely a way of living out of the faith that has already been placed in Christ. It's the effect of a life that comes by faith in Jesus. It's the body of believers that have gathered together with communal and corporate faith in Jesus. Friend, if you're trusting your church for your salvation, you have no assurance of justification before God. I love this church. Pray God keeps me here a long time. But if you're trusting the church for your salvation, for your justification to God, you don't have any. Such is the hopeless state of every person who is bringing their church attendance, who's bringing their Bible reading, who's bringing their charitable giving and their offerings to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and their acts of loving their neighbor and their church volunteering as a defense before God. Yes, God, I'm, 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 I'm guilty of all of those sins that I am accused of. I did all of them, but I was in church so many times. I gave a lot of money to missions overseas and here. Do you know how many cups of Kool-Aid I poured for toddlers in preschool ministry? So many paper cups, God. I did do all those things, sure, but I pulled weeds in the churchyard. I clapped when we sang God is good all the time, all the time God is good, and I clapped on two and four and not on one and three. I even got the rhythm right. That's a sermon for another time. But, God, I did all the things. I did all the things. I did all the things. Yes, I'm guilty of everything I'm accused of, but I did all the church stuff, every single bit of it. From the person that brings all of their church stuff, all of their Jesus-flavored actions or attitudes or schedules to God on that day of judgment, but without Christ at His side, stands empty-handed, in the face of God's wrath, ready to receive it all for their sins. Do you know why? Because Christianity doesn't save. Christ does. The church doesn't save. 
Jesus does. The Lord's Supper and baptism don't save. The risen Lord Jesus, whom those things point to, does. All of these things, all of the good things that we do, all the church stuff that we do. And by the way, I'm not saying stop coming to church, stop coming to Bible study, stop reading your Bible on your own, stop praying, stop serving toddlers, juice, you know, in preschool ministry. No, do all of those things, please. But don't look to them as assurance of your salvation. Don't look to them to save you. Look to Christ who saves you. And do all of those things out of a relationship of love for Christ and faith in Him. Which means further, dear Christian, when we share the gospel with other people, with our neighbors, with our family members who don't know Christ, we point people to Jesus, the only justifier. We don't share the gospel and then say, oh, just come to church on Sunday and you'll be good. Because why? Church doesn't save. Jesus does. When we share the gospel with people, we don't say, well, just, yeah, call yourself a Christian and you'll be good. Why? Because Christianity doesn't save. Christ does. When we share the hope of salvation, of justification, of being right with God through faith in Jesus Christ to our lost neighbors and family members and to our children in our own homes and our grandchildren, we call them to trust Christ. Turn to Jesus. Look on Him who was pierced for your sins, who was raised in glory from the dead, and depend on Him as your sacrifice for sins and your victorious Redeemer. Depend upon Him to stand in your defense in the courtroom of God. Don't depend on the church. Don't depend on all your Christian friends. Don't depend on all the gifts that you gave to things. Depend on Christ. Justification teaches that you cannot be justified to God on your own merits. It is faith in Jesus that saves, not dependence on religion. So friend, point people to the fact that justification is a declaration that God makes for those who have trusted in His Son. Justification teaches us, second, that if you have been justified through faith in Christ, then rejoice. If you have been justified, rejoice. If you have trusted Jesus for your right standing with God and as your defense before a righteous God, then Christian, celebrate it. See that the burden of your sin has been lifted. Realize that there is nothing left to prove to God. Understand that all the accusations of Satan fall on deaf ears because you are in Christ by faith and thereby you have nothing to hide and nothing to fear from God. Rejoice. Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. And in your joy, Christian, in your celebration of the reality that you are right with God, Realize that you have a new way to view and endure suffering. That's a strange way to go with that, Pastor. Yep, but Paul did it first, so I'm just going where he went. As disciples, as Paul says, those who have disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, those who have been justified to God, we do not run from hardship. We do not flee from suffering. But we receive it when it comes as God's joyful way of developing something in us. What does God intend to develop in us who have been justified to Him through faith in Jesus by suffering? He intends to produce in us endurance or patience 
and character and hope. Suffering, hardship, persecution, even for the faith that we have in Christ, which leads to patience, it leads to character, it leads to hope, is a loving gift of God that is worked out in the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. God has justified us for this. And it's our right standing with God that leads us to have confidence to know that my suffering is not because God is mad at me. My suffering is because God is working His character in me. And He wants me to have greater firmer, more steadfast hope in Christ who is coming to rescue me and usher me into eternity with him. So we who have been justified to God know that suffering is God's loving gift to conform us into the image of his son. When we talk about salvation, we have to talk about justification. In many ways, it is our justification to God, being made right with God, that opens the door for real forgiveness of sin, that opens the door for real joy in our life with Christ and a transformed view of the difficulties that we'll face in life and of the hope that they produce for the justified. When we think about being made right with God, justified to God, we must remember that we are guilty persons who stand before a righteous judge and that our only hope is in the one next to us who has already satisfied justice on our behalf. We become right with God when we depend on Christ, when we put our faith into Him and leave it there. Not because we are worthy, but because God has declared it. And no one can undo the word of the King. When you wholly depend on Jesus, dear friend, God declares forever of you, this one is righteous. So let it be written. So let it be done.